Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Picture a woman in a hijab. Her face and her hands are the only part of her body you can see. What do you think you know about her? Millions of women around the world currently wear or have worn a hijab. And today, two of those millions of women talk about their relationship to the covering. When wearing a hijab became a requirement after the Iranian revolution, one woman of the Jewish faith struggled to adapt and came face to face with the morality police. Uh, She said, you bloody it's because of women of you that you cause social corruption on the streets of our cities. And you'll meet a black Muslim woman living in the United States who sees her hijab as a powerful demonstration of faith. Hijab has always been the banner of Islam. Even though it comes with extra responsibility, I think about that as I interact in the street. I'm Kayone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kayone Wolf. In September, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian woman, died while in custody of the morality police in Iran. She'd been arrested for allegedly wearing tight pants and for not wearing her hijab properly. Her death has sparked protests all around the world, including from Iranian women, who removed and even burned their own headscarves. Many women see hijabs as an anti-feminist symbol of oppression. But other women, some of the Muslim faith, see their head coverings as empowering, beautiful, sacred. Today you're going to meet two people who've had very different relationships, experiences, and histories with these coverings. One woman grew up in the hijabi Muslim faith, and it's a foundation of her religious beliefs. The other woman was not Muslim, but after the 1979 Iranian Revolution, was forced to begin and continue wearing a hijab. She felt liberated from wearing it after she moved to the United States many years later. In interviewing these women, I wasn't interested in whether or not it's right or wrong to wear a hijab, but to better understand how one article of clothing could mean such different things to different people. Let's get started with Jacqueline Saper. She's the author of From Miniskirt to Hijab, A Girl in Revolutionary Iran. I asked her to take me back to what life was like for her before everything changed in Iran in 1979. I grew up in the 60s and 70s in Iran. I was born in 1961 when uh, Jacqueline Kennedy was the um, first lady of the United States. So that's why I was named Jacqueline. So you can see how pro-Western and pro-American the country was. My father was a university professor, which at that time, because illiteracy rate, I believe, was 40 percent and much more higher among women, uh, it was a very prestigious position to have. And uh, I am I am typical. I am Iranian, but not the uh, average Iranian mainstream because uh, I come from a Jewish family which was a minority in Iran. And uh, although the Jewish people have been in Iran for since biblical times, and I also have and had an English mother. So in per- in Iran, they called me a dorage, literally meaning having two veins. And in my book, I mentioned I was a minority within a minority. And that helped me have a, I believe it helped me have a deeper sense of analyzing people and situations because I spent every summer in England and I was like a chameleon movie by, was bilingual, bicultural. And uh, I grew up with um, very devout Muslim maids. Uh, home help who were my second mothers because my mom was a career woman. And through them, I understood and learned a lot about Islam, Islamic salutations, which helped me greatly after the revolution. I wore, especially in the 70s, Queen Farah was the, everybody emulated her. There were superstars, singers like Gugush or the American Farah Fawcett. Everybody copied their hairstyles. As I mentioned, I wore mini skirts and the latest fashions. I, uh, I was, you know, in my 
late teens, I would raise my hand and sing along with Helen Reddy's song, I Am Woman, Women's Empowerment. So I really uh, came of age in a, I went to a co-ed high school. I danced to music, went to school events. And uh, the I knew Iran was rapidly modernizing. And I understood maybe 50, 60 years ago, women in Iran, like my grandmother, wore headscarves. And in the Qajar dynasty, they were very much covered in hijab. But all that was so distant to us and so unfamiliar. We were modern women. Although I have to add, uh, before the revolution, some people wore the hijab, some didn't. It wasn't even a concern. It was a personal choice. Will you talk about what happened uh, in terms of women wearing hijabs uh, during the Iranian Revolution in 1979? In 1963, the Shah of Iran had uh, some reforms called the White Revolution. Among them was the right for women to vote. And that's eight years before women in Switzerland had the same right. That's how modern it was. And Ayatollah Khomeini, a cleric who uh, was strongly opposed this and many other reforms. And he was exiled to the neighboring country of Iraq. And he remained there for 14 years opposing the Shah, the king. And then in 1978, he he went to France where he was given political asylum. And from there, he steered the revolution. Uh, in those days, obviously, there were no internet or social media. So he he recorded his sermons on cassette tapes and leaflets, and people gathered, and quickly it got momentum. Of course, there was a movie theater in Abadan, south of Iran, that was set ablaze. Over 400 people were burned, and they blamed them to on the Shah. So basically, January 16, 1979, the Shah of Iran left for good. And two weeks later, on February 1st, 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Iran on an Air France airplane. The first decree of Ayatollah Khomeini after the referendum, uh, after revolution succeeded, was on March 8th, 1979, which was uh, International Women's Day. And he said that women, he started with women in the workforce, that they should wear the hijab. Uh, And this was very shocking for us uh, because before he had said that would be a choice. And as a modern girl who had always dressed the way I wanted, and, um, you know, this was scary. And, you know, I'm not talking about a fancy Hermes or uh, Chanel scarf on your head, like the movies. No, this was a real hijab that part of your forehead had to be covered. You couldn't wear any makeup, no nail polish. May I ask, why? Like, what, what is the fear behind or feeling behind wanting to cover a woman and make her less adorned? You know, the hijab is a constant visible reminder uh, of the supposed sin of being a seductive woman in need of being held down. The women are deemed untrustworthy who could seduce men. Uh, that's that's the problem. And unfortunately, uh, there, when morality police was created, and I obviously, I, I was stopped by morality police, and I saw the harsh treatment of girls and women in public spaces by women morality police. What was it like when they stopped you? I was walking in Lale Park, minding my own business. This was the beginning of the, about 81. It was still the hijab law was not in force, but I was, I felt extremely conscious of walking without a headscarf. I would wear long sleeves, pants, and I would always put my hair in a ponytail. A man and woman approached me and uh, she came to me. First, she was very polite. She said, excuse me, sister. Everybody was sister or brother. Could you open the zipper of your tote bag and show me the contents? You know, those days uh, there were a lot of the Mujahideen Khalq. They were giving out the oppositions to their Islamic Republic, were giving out leaflets. They were looking for that too. So I obviously I did not uh, confront them. I opened my zipper and I always carried a headscarf with me, just in case. And she found the headscarf in my bag. 
she said, you bloody whore, it's because of women of you that you cause social corruption on the streets of our cities. You are Qarbzadeh. Um, Qarbzadeh means you are enamored with the West. And I noticed the man behind her, he moved his hand over something under, tucked under his jacket. And I saw the patrol van and there were many rumors. You did not want to be arrested and taken in those patrol vans. Yeah, Like th there were very rumors that they would pour acid on the faces of women who were uncovered. They made women very fearful. But I knew getting in that van, it was not something I wanted to get myself into. So I, I appeased her by apologizing profusely. And I said, uh, my headscarf was a chiffon fabric. And I said, it kept on slipping. I needed to sew myself a maghna'e, which is a very large headscarf that covers the top torso of your body also. And she let me go. But after then, I definitely uh, started wearing hijab. You know, I was a, I was a you know, modern uh, Jewish teenager. And from then on, I dressed as an Orthodox Muslim woman, not only in appearance, but in mannerism. I put my eyes down. I, I never smiled at anyone. So I, I, I learned, like many others, to act. At home, I had some cassette tapes from pre-revolution, Julio Iglesias or whatever. I would uh, put the volume down and listen to it. But outside, I acted differently. What did it feel like after a whole life of not wearing a hijab to suddenly have to wear one? I felt safe by acting and wearing it, but obviously I didn't like to be in so many layers because in those days you could only wear black color, colors of black, brown, navy, or gray. And I, after the revolution, I moved to the city of Shiraz in the south of the country, which has a milder climate and hot summers. And once I remember, I had visited my parents in Tehran, and my mother said, wear a, a, a coat. It's a chilly day, wear this coat, you know? And I thought, instead of wearing the long manteau, I wear this very long coat. And the day turned out to be hot. And at noon, I was sweating under the headscarf and the thick coat, and I couldn't take it off. You moved to Houston in 1987. You were almost 26 years old. What was it like adapting your entire style from Iran to Houston, Texas in the late 80s? It was elating. It was an amazing time of my life. I think I can say the best time of my life. You know, I was familiar with the Western culture, but coming back to it to experience freedom to, I, I immediately wore pants in yellows and fuchsia colors and dressed my daughter. Put She was six years old. She went to first grade. I put her hair in pretty clips and braided it and ribbons just to enjoy it. What was that like for her? I mean, she had to wear a hijab as well. She went to first grade in Iran for quite a few months. And um, seeing her in hijab, it broke my heart. She had to uh, wear the maqna'e and a long manteau, something like a robe and white pants. And when I took her to school, all the little girls, of course, it was segregated, gender segregated, girls school and boys school. All the little girls looked like a sea of just unanimously all looked the same until they turned their head. You could see a little round face to see who they were. She was being indoctrinated into radical Islamic fundamental beliefs. For example, she would line up in, in the um, before class and they would hold their little fists up in the air, crying, shouting death to America and death to Israel. Without knowing where these places were, she learned to hate them. Then in, when we were, once we were flying from Te Shiraz to Tehran, it's about an hour flight, an hour and a half. At the airport, there were lots of posters of clerics and she would go up to them and kiss them. And once she said, uh, the teacher drew a bottle on the chalkboard, you know, a bottle of wine or something because alcoholic beverages were illegal uh, after the revolution. And they wanted to see who had this in their homes. So these little things, and she 
as I said, Shiraz was had a hot, warmer climate, and all her the back of her neck was uh, had a rash, and uh, no, I couldn't do anything about it. But the good thing is, when we came to Houston to the United States, she completely uh, maybe because uh, she was so young, she completely acclimated, and it again I think it's because she was just six. She she went to an American school and she wore cowboy boots and uh, it, it was a quick turnaround. That was Jacqueline Saper, author of From Miniskirt to Hijab, A Girl in Revolutionary Iran. The music you're hearing is Piraye Porofar. She is an Iranian tar player and composer. And she studied with all the greats when she entered the National Music Conservatory of Tehran at age nine. At the time of the Iranian Revolution, she took her music to Spain. And then in 1982, to the United States. In California, she became the music director of the Nava Ensemble. And later, she co-founded the Leon Ensemble. When we get back, hear Jacqueline's reaction to the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, which sparked worldwide protests. Then meet a Muslim woman whose hijab is a direct and beautiful connection to her faith. And by not showing anything but her face and her hands, it puts people in a position to learn more about her character. It invites people to actually find out who I am because they can't judge me directly and completely by the way that I look. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. On Arba'in, the 40th day of mourning, Tens of thousands flocked to Masa Amini's grave just outside her hometown of Sakez. This is the year of blood, chanted the mourners. The supreme leader will be overthrown. In Sakez, security forces shot tear gas at protesters. Such is the pattern of the last 40 days. Protests met with violence, in which more than 230 people have been killed. At Mashhad University, women removed their hijab. Women have led these protests from the start, but men are following. That was audio from recent news reports about the ongoing protests in Iran. Reactions to the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. She was accused by Iranian morality police of wearing her hijab improperly. She died while in their custody, sparking outrage around the world. Later in the show, we'll meet an African-American hijabi Muslim woman living in New Haven, Connecticut. We'll talk about what wearing the hijab means to her and what it's like covering everything but her face and her hands here in the United States. But right now, we're talking with Jacqueline Saper, author of From Miniskirt to Hijab, A Girl in Revolutionary Iran. She was born and raised in Tehran to Iranian and British parents and lived through the implementation of hijab laws after the revolution in 1979. She moved to Houston, Texas in 1987 and has not worn a hijab since. I asked her for her reactions to the death of Masa Amini, 
and the protests that followed. It's a paradox, a situation that you educate the women. 60% of university students are women. 98% of the population, I think, are educated. And you want to treat these women where forced compulsory hijab they don't want to. And it's not just the hijab. It's the, the way they have to live, the laws. For example, a woman, when she wants to travel, she has to get her husband's written permission to get a passport and to travel. Uh, when it comes to inheritance, women get half of men. When it comes to uh, giving testimony in court, Two women equal one man's testimony. When you want it, the divorce is most mostly a man's choice. And a woman can have the custody of her son after divorce only for two years and has to give up her son and a daughter to seven years. Women cannot attend stadium, sports stadiums. Women cannot be singers. Before the revolution, there were very uh, famous women pop stars. No singing, no, no dancing in public, no riding of a bike. And then you educate women in the, this century. They know what's going on. And they, you expect them to act like their grandmothers or great-grandmothers. It just doesn't make sense. You wrote an opinion piece in the Seattle Times about how a hijab can be both a symbol of empowerment and a symbol of oppression. What do you mean by that? Um, uh, when I said hijab as a uh, means of empowerment, that was in 1979. As I mentioned, Iran was so pro-Western and secular, and women wore miniskirts. Suddenly now the miniskirt seemed offensive and it was seemed contrary to the sanctity of cultural and religious beliefs. So at the time of the revolution, when they were chanting independence, freedom, and Islamic Republic, they, the, many women donned headscarves and wore loose clothing to exert their political influence and to express their defiance to that status quo. They never knew this would become a permanent situation. Uh, for, in their case, the hijab symbolized a rebellion against the establishment of the monarchy and a deference to the West. That was the difference. But the, the problem was when they were chanting they wanted an Islamic Republic, because Iran, uh, known as Persia until, until 1935, had always had kings uh, for two and a half thousand years, nobody really knew what an Islamic Republic would entail. Is there anything else that you want to make sure you say or that you want our listeners to really hold on to from our conversation? Obviously, Iran has almost 84 million people. You cannot generalize a nation. But uh, I, I can tell you the Persian culture, Iranian culture, they're very hospitable people. The Iranian-Americans are an extremely successful immigrant group who have contributed to uh, the countries they've gone to, Europe or America or wherever. Persian culture it is a beautiful culture. There's beautiful poetry, delicious cuisine. Don't judge a people by their government, which I think now we all know is they're different. Obviously, not all Iranians are against this regime. We're just trying to wish everybody a better life in this day and age where with social media and internet, the world is a smaller place. Well, Jacqueline Saper, author of From Miniskirt to Hijab, a girl in revolutionary Iran, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I am woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Cause I've heard it all before the next woman you're going to meet has a vastly different experience with wearing a hijab. Mubarika Ibrahim is a fitness and nutrition coach living in New Haven, Connecticut, and she's an African-American hijabi Muslim. I asked her why she wears a hijab. So I wear head covering because I believe that it is a requirement of dress according to Islamic law. 
We could put lots of sort of subjective reasons around it, but that really is the basis of why I get up every morning and put it on because I believe it is something that is commanded by God. When you do think about subjective reasons for it, what are some of them? Subjectively, when I am seen with a headscarf that it garners a certain amount of respect among a lot of people, I think that it also takes away the idea of, I mean, I think I look beautiful in a scarf, but I, agree. <laughs> but I think that it um, takes away from the sort of viewing people simply based on their beauty, right? And it sort of invites people to actually find out who I am because they can't judge me directly and completely by the way that I look. Yeah. And in your case, you wear coverings. The only thing that's exposed when you are out of your home is your face and your hands. And so it's not just about hair. Uh, it's about your whole body. And so is that is that aligned with what you're saying? Is it focused just on these simple things, these simple parts of your appearance? Yes. So, so my definition of um, what is called hijab, right? So we often sort of simplify it by saying that it is a headscarf. But actually, the commandment around covering is not just about covering your head. Even when we looked at texts of things that the prophet said, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, things that scholars have said, there's actually no wording that says cover your head or cover your hair. The wording around what a woman's hijab is in Islam is a wording of exception. So it is cover everything except your face and your hand. What is allowed to be shown is the face and the hand. There's actually no wording in any religious text that says cover your hair. <laughs> when you put it on in the morning, you know, you've been doing it almost your whole life. I understand it start, you start wearing it at puberty. I'd love to just hear you talk about how it feels to put the hijab on. I think for me, since I've been doing it so long, it's just... It's like putting on a shirt. <laughs> I'll tell you what it felt like to put on my shirt this morning. Great. Right. Yeah. So, but I mean, it has also has more meaning than a shirt. <laughs> yes. So, well, you know what? I would actually say it probably does not. It, th that comment actually reminded me of a story of a, an experience I had when I was in high school. Uh, a young man walked by me and he tugged my scarf and it almost came off. Right. And so that led to a meeting with the principal, right? Because I was very upset. And one of the things that I explained to him is like pulling off a Muslim woman's headscarf is literally like going up to another woman and ripping off her shirt. Like that is the significance of the scarf. It is a part of our covering. It is a part of our dress. And we are just as connected and impassionate and think about it in both that moral sense as if you went to a non-Muslim woman and you just ripped her shirt open. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, when do you wear it and when don't you wear it? So um, anytime that I am anywhere where a non-related male so what we call a mahram, right? Men who would be legally permissible, Islamically legally permissible for me to marry anytime that I may be viewed by them. So whether it's in the house, whether it's outside, whether it's, so if my husband has friends over, they are non-related males, then I will have my scarf on in my house. If I am in a situation where Every male around me is related to me. So, for example, um, I remember once we had a family vacation. I come from quite a large family. Uh, it was me, my four sisters, all of our children, uh, probably about 20 of them all together. 
My sister's husband actually was ill at the time and he could not come. And so my husband was the only uh, male that was not blood related to me, right? But we're related by marriage there. And my sisters cannot uncover in front of my husband. So I was the only, me and my mother was the only adult women who could stay uncovered the entire time <laughs> because my nephews, I can't marry them. <laughs> my sons and my husband was there. So I could like go fuck around in short sleeve shirts and no scarf on. And my sisters are like, Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you're doing this, like you're looking at who's around you and you, you want to make sure that you're faithful to the words that you live by. Are there ever times where you're like, where you're like Ugh, I have to cover up. Can he just go? You know, absolutely. And you do find yourself in those situations. So in Islam, we can marry our cousins, right? So this is somebody that you would have to cover in front of, right? In most Western countries, Muslims don't marry their cousins, but it's quite common in, in Middle Eastern and um, East Asian cultures. So when we're around our cousins, we still have to cover. So I have four children, three boys and one girl. And um I remember when my daughter, when she was first getting into puberty, one of my sisters asked if my nephew could come spend the summer with us, right? He would be my daughter's cousin. And I actually said no. I said no because I didn't think that it was fair that she would have to stay covered all the time because her cousin was staying with us. It's okay for him to come for a weekend. You know, that's not too much to ask. But no, he could not actually come stay for two months because I thought that that was unfair to my daughter. And in complete transparency, there's many hot summer days <laughs> or good hair days when you're like, oh, I look cute if I if I only did not have to wear this hijab. <laughs> we have those days. We do. We do. <laughs> right now we're talking and you have a beautiful like royal purple uh, hijab on. And I've seen you with so many other with bright pink patterned olive green with white threads thrown into how many how many do you have too many <laughs> <laughs> too many I have wow so I have a lot of hijab I probably have at least 50 <laughs> now how, how do you collect them like where do you get them you know what it is it's hijabs for Muslim women is literally like non-Muslim women having shoe obsessions <laughs> Like you get a hijab, you love the hijab. And even though you get new hijabs and you don't wear that hijab for a year, just knowing that it's there and it's beautiful and that you can put it on. <laughs> so you just sort of, oh, there's a nice one. Let me buy it. Oh, there's a, so you just keep buying and buying. And next thing you know, it's no longer hanging on. We buy tie hangers that men normally would put their tie on. We use those for hijab. And then it becomes a big wooden basket <laughs> filled with hijabs. <laughs> and what defines a hijab? Like it could could anything be a hijab or is it are there is it a certain like length or material? So anything could be a hijab as long as it's long enough to, you know, <laughs> uh, fulfill its purpose. So you can pretty much make any piece of material out to be your hijab. Um, when we were talking earlier about, you know, having certain certain men you, you must cover up around and certain others you don't, I understand that when you were meeting and getting to know the man who would be your husband, what was the moment like when he saw your hair for the first time? Like, is... Is that as intimate as I am like projecting it must be? When he first saw me without hijab, he just asked me, he was like, just sit there. And he like literally just stared at me for five minutes. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> so he just, he just really just stared at me. <laughs> that was Mubarika Ibrahim. She's a fitness and nutrition coach living in New Haven, Connecticut, and she's a lifelong hijabi Muslim. 
After the break, we'll hear more of her story and what it was like for her when she traveled overseas to Senegal, where she, in her hijab, was no longer a minority. But she was still kind of different. What made it an interesting experience is because it was the first time in my life that I was not looked at as different because I had a hijab on, but I was looked at as different because I was American. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast, In Absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. So, you've never donated to this station before? That's okay. Public Media Giving Days are a great time to make your first gift. Here's how. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. We're meeting two women today who've had very different relationships with hijabs. Mubaraka Ibrahim is a hijabi Muslim and a fitness and nutrition coach living in New Haven, Connecticut. She's such a motivational and insightful presence. She's even been on the Oprah show. I wanted to know if she'd ever spent time in a majority Muslim country where she could move around in her hijab and not have to feel like an outsider. She told me about her trip to Senegal. So Senegal is not just majority Muslim, but they're also a majority practicing, I would say hijab practicing country. All right. What made it an interesting experience is because it was the first time in my life that I was a part of a majority. I was not looked at as different because of my skin color or because I had a hijab on, but I was looked at as different because I was American. So that was interesting. <laughs> so I can't go anywhere like totally fit in. It's now, how could the, was it as soon as you opened your mouth? Yeah. So, um, so I went with my daughter. They actually, because Senegalese are dark and we are dark skin, they thought at first glance that we was actually Senegalese. But when we open our mouth, <laughs> they would immediately know we were not Senegalese. And we were, we had spent, a friend of ours was taking us around and it was really interesting because when we went to certain things, he was like, don't talk. He was like, as soon as you talk, they're going to charge us double. He was like, let (laughs) me do everything. (laughs) He was just not, he was like, don't even talk to each other. He was like, just be totally silent (laughs) because we're Americans and our dollar amount is more. Everything will be double as soon as they find it out you're American. And then when we were not around people who we were doing, uh, you know, business with and we were around just uh, regular Senegalese, they're like, oh, my God, you look like a Fulani. You look like, right. They were just identif- trying to identify what tribe we would be. in, <laughs> And it was interesting because they were not just amazed that we looked like them, but they were amazed that we were practicing Muslims in America. Like they were literally like, you wear hijab in America? Because whatever narrative they're seeing over there, they think that it's impossible to practice Islam in America. That's their narrative. And they're like, so like there's mosque in America? And like they just had all of these questions about What was it like to uh, live in America as a Muslim? In fact, on my way to the airport, the driver that the tour company hired to take me to the airport, he was just like, you're American? He was like, so like, do you know how to say Quran? And so like, 
if I had gotten that question from a taxi driver in America, I probably would have been a little offended. Like you in America, you know better. But I could tell that he was like genuinely curious, like, is your version of Islam the same version of Islam? And so he actually asked me to recite some verses from the Quran and I recited verses and then he recited verses. So in the chapters, right, there's a sequence to it. So if you know this chapter, we sort of like went back and forth in song and he just was like so fascinated. Like it's the same type of Islam. (laughs) What I'm hearing you say is that no matter where you go, You know, in Senegal, they were trying to identify what tribe you were from. And in the United States, I know that people ask, you know, no, but where are you really from? And you're part Cherokee and African-American. You are like as American as it gets. But people are trying to figure you out wherever you go. Everybody want to put you in a box. (laughs) Yeah, in a way that I'm not. I do not face that in any way, shape or form to the degree that you do. How does it feel for people to, to have this dynamic with you always? You know, sometimes it can be frustrating, sort of like when it gets to the third, no, where, where are you from? Yeah, I'm from America. No, where's your mother from? My mother's from Brooklyn. No, no, no. Where's, okay, where's your mother's mother from? Right? When they start going back to mother's mother, then it's, then it gets frustrating. Like, bro, <laughs> here's my ancestry.com link. Right? You look. Maybe I should just create a website and work at <laughs> ancestry.com. There you go. You can see where I'm from. I think that it gets frustrating when people sort of like cry because their first question doesn't put you in their box. And so they're just trying to, they're trying to fit a square into a round hole, right? They're like, no, 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 you have to fit into my narrative. So it must be your great, great grandparents, however far back they want to go until I fit into their narrative, but I'm never going to fit into their narrative. So at times it can be frustrating. I think what I like to think in doing, you know, things like this, like things like being on the Oprah show, doing things where I can sort of like shatter boxes, not just for myself, but for other Muslim women, right? So there isn't an assumption, like we're not a monolith. Our experiences are so incredibly different. Like even as an African-American Muslim woman, my experiences, my views are going to be different than the next African-American Muslim woman who's had a different experience in, you know, in her lifetime. You, There may be Muslim women who are like, you know, I feel, I feel threatened every single day, but I personally really don't feel that way. I just feel like I may have to make a little bit more effort to get people to get to know me. And that's also one of the reasons why I tend to be very vocal, right? Because if I'm quiet and you're just judging me based on what your box is around what I look like, that may be very different than if I actually used my voice to tell you who I am. And there's also this dynamic of what you look like tells you, like it really does tell people something about you. It does speak to your values. It does speak to your your religion and your faith and so much more about you. And at the same time, you are also more than your hijab. You are so much more than just one thing. And that there's that tension too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's the, some of the things that people assume in terms of sort of a dedication to faith, um, my beliefs. Certainly hijab has become, and it has always been the symbol of Islam. While I was at Turkey, I did a, a, a religious tour of Turkey, right? So not just like sort of, this is the Islamic history. We found a guide um, who did an Islamic history tour. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me was, During the early parts of Islam in Arabia, the first war that the Muslims fought was when the Prophet, peace be upon him, was leaving the house. They did not have a banner. They did not have a flag. The Muslims did not have a flag. And so his wife gave him her hijab to use as a flag. And it stuck with me because to me, the symbolism of that is that hijab has always been the banner of Islam. Even if we don't want it to be, 
even though it comes with extra responsibility, even though it makes us sort of the sore thumb, the stick out, but from day one, it has always been the banner of Islam. And I think about that as I interact in the street. For some people, I'm the only Muslim that they've ever met in their life, right? Statistically, 70% of Americans do not know a Muslim. So I'm aware that like their interaction with me as a Muslim woman is going to be how they sort of define their narrative of Muslim women. And even an interaction with me as a Black woman can be how they define what black women are. And so sometimes it's it, it's it's a, a heavy responsibility to be aware of that, but I think this like there's nothing you could do to change that. <laughs> there's a part of me that wants to ask like, would you like a world where all women share your religion and all women wear hijabs? Like how would that feel? Is that I don't know. I don't know how to ask that question. I don't know. There's something in me that just wants to know, like, do you wish everybody shared the same religion and you could just see every woman out and about in a hijab? That's an interesting question. So the way it would be answered in a or asked inside of like a circle of Muslims would be, would you like to move to a Muslim country? Right. <laughs> and there's pros and cons to that. I would say as a generally just as a human being, I don't think that that is the way the world is meant to work. Right. So there is a verse in the Quran that I often think of where God says, I have made you of different tribes and nations so that you may get to know one another, not so that you may despise one another. Right. So we are intentionally made different. Right. That is literally how God designed it. And I think that in a world where everybody is exactly the same is sort of kind of like. Do you wish that everybody was a doctor? If everybody was a doctor, who would build our buildings, right? If everybody was a doctor, who would make shoes? Who would make clothes, right? We could not have a world where everyone is a monolith. So I would say from a sort of practical perspective, that would be my answer. From a perspective of faith, you know, I believe that my faith is a way to get to paradise. And if I looked at it from a perspective of faith, yes, I want everybody to be Muslim so that we can all eternally live in paradise together, right? But that doesn't mean we all need to be the same. Thank you. Thank you for entertaining that question um, and holding it and answering it so beautifully. Um, there have been protests around the world. Um, in September, 22-year-old Masa Amini died while in custody. She was accused of not wearing her hijab correctly. I would just like to get your reaction to all that. One of the things that have disturbed me along the process is people assuming that what happened in Iran is the experience of every Muslim woman. To be against injustice means you have to remove your faith in the symbol of it, right? This idea of if you're not taking off your hijab in uh, protest of what's going on in Iran, then you are brainwashed, then you are not with us, then you are condoning what they did. You can condone murder without compromising your belief. There is nothing in Islam that says a woman should be murdered because she does not wear hijab. There is actually no punishment at all in Islam for a woman taking off her hijab. So 
not feeling that the hijab is a religious obligation for myself, that it is a way for me pleasing God is not an acceptance or condoning murdering somebody because they took their hijab off. The two being intertwined, I think, is unjust and it is a way of sort of politicizing even more than we already have the decision to wear hijab when that decision should be based on everyone's individual choice to believe as they should. Well, Mubaraka Ibrahim, thank you so very much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. One other thing I want you to know about Mubarika is that she's also a competitive power lifter. Just recently, in fact, days after our conversation at her first competition at the United States Powerlifting Association Connecticut State Championships, she won three first place medals and broke state records with 314 pound squats and a 330 pound deadlift. Now the dress code for powerlifting is a snug-fitting singlet. And it's gotta be snug-fitting because the people judging her performance need to see the precise angles of her hips and knees as she lifts. But snug-fitting isn't appropriate, according to her faith. So she found a middle ground. Mubarika requested and got a religious waiver and then collaborated with fashion designer Ayana Ife to create the world's first modest powerlifting jumper. You can see Mubarika dominating her weightlifting competition and that jumper through links on our website, ctpublic.org audacious. This show is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford with help from our intern, Taylor Doyle. If this episode surprised you, challenged you, or inspired you in some way, please share it and subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the conversations we've got lined up for you. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>